And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. Hello and welcome to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM. We are here once a month to look at the arts, the culture and the people of East London. But the issues we cover, as ever, go way beyond the East London borders. So wherever you're listening, welcome. My name's Nia Charpentier and I'm here with Pearl Wise and Daniel Manning. Yes, hello. We have an exciting show coming up for you. We'll be hearing all about a new play that looks at sex through the ages and a photographer embarking on a challenge on a shoestring of a budget. And we have singer-songwriter, the very soulful Bernardo in the studio, uh, joining us later to perform a live session. And to coincide with the film Suffragette, uh, which opened in the box office on Monday, we'll be speaking to the co-author of a book all about East London's role in the suffragettes' movement. And that was a little reminder of the projects we launched last month, calling on you to send us your sounds of the London Underground. More about that later on. But to start us off, let's hear about the extraordinary challenge a photographer from Sheffield set himself to come down to London and photograph 100 musicians with only £100 in his pocket. Have a listen to Eastcast's Anna Xavier catch up with the thrifty photographer C.K. Goulding. Hey, I'm C.K. Golding. I'm a music TV presenter and official artist photographer, currently embarking on a huge challenge called 100 Musicians. I'm from Sheffield. You can probably tell I'm a northern boy, Okay, I've come down with £100 and my camera. My challenge is to find 100 unsigned London musicians that need new press and promo shots for their own progression through the music industry, for their gig posters, cover artwork, all that stuff. And we'll go somewhere cool, do a shoot, and they can give me whatever they want for the shoot, and everything I get is keeping me in London to pay for my hostels, my food, my water, etc. The challenge is to photograph 100 before I run out of money. Um, So... You worked in radio as well. So how did you decide to jump from radio to this project? Well, initially I was a radio DJ until about 2009, and that came to a natural conclusion. I decided to, to, to explore music TV, because music's something I adore, and TV, you know, communi- communicating something's never I've, I've never had much of a problem with. I, I maybe speak a bit fast. <laughs> but apart from that, I've never had a problem talking. So, yeah, you know, music TV would have been the next natural progression. So now that's what I do. Brands commission me to front their content, whether it's sessions, interviews with bands, I present festivals, um, live gigs, showcases, back in the north of England, Sheffield, in my home. And 
like I said, I'm an official artist photographer, so musicians use me for their official shots back in the Sheffield. So I thought I'm going to come to London and I'm going to do this because I just did a bit of a... I don't know, a bit of a challenge, a new adventure, and that's what this is, because I've never spent that much time in London before, and I've been here for two months now, and I've done 46 mu- no, 42 musicians, so there's probably another two months to come, but that's fine, because I love it. I'm meeting people like you, Anna, and it's glorious. Anna's so cute. <laughs> oh, dear. She just cringed, by the way. <laughs> Um, I was wondering, how do you actually meet the musicians? How do you get in touch? How do you find them, or how do they find you? It's it's twofold, really. I mean, I've not I've not come down to London with any PR, any agent, any manager. This is just me and my. Especially because you don't really know anyone down here. I know no one. I, I did know no one. Now I know loads of people that I've just met organically, like you at that wonderful gig. Laid bare, check it out, by the way. Um, so people are finding me organically just through tweets I'm putting out, or obviously now I'm on Musician 42. If I photograph a musician, they'll tell their friends, and it's just been organic and you know, just wonderful people that have just found out about what I'm doing and just spread it throughout their various networks. And going to gigs, going to gigs is great because that gives me an opportunity to see who's awesome and just go up and tell them what I'm doing and say I'd love to do something for you and that's been my favourite thing to do so far just discovering talent What bands pay you? You get to you through the day or those days or that week so how has it been managing that budget? I mean, it's been, oh God, it's been, there's been some times when it's been really difficult financially, and this is a different thing entirely, actually. This brings me on to something which, it's not part of your question, but there's been times when I've been down to, like, 10 or 20 pounds, and because this has become, like, a documentary that I'm filming and sharing through my Facebook page, that people, like, it's almost become, like, a show now that people are watching, tuning into my various different adventures, and I remember, like, about a week ago, I, I got down to about 20 pounds, and I was a day from having to book another week worth of hostels, and 20 pounds won't get me weeks worth of hostels. It was really difficult. But I've shared the good and the bad through this, through my Facebook page. So I just basically said, I've got 20 quid left, this is really difficult, but let's see what happens. I didn't do it asking for anything, I just did it to share what was happening. And within about 10 minutes of me putting that out there, two people said, CK, what's your PayPal account? I want to send you money. Like, two people have been following my journey. So everything I get from the shoots, and so far it's ranged from £10 to £90 and everything in between. And 60 quid will get me a week in a hostel. People kind of underestimate what 60 quid is in, like, in London terms. As we speak, recording this interview right now, I'm okay. For now. For now. Let's see how long that lasts. You just told me before that got friends with some of the musicians, and then later on they they kind of yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things I adore about this project. Take the photography out out of the equation, and it's just the friendships I've made and the adventures I've had and the stories I've accumulated now. And and I imagine that it's not a normal day on your week. But can you just try to describe what a day would be like? Yeah, yeah. The average day would be me making sure I get up to get the free hostel breakfast. (laughs) Because during this challenge, anything that's free, I'm all over it, right? So I'll eat that, go back up to my room and send off emails. Because, you know, sometimes I like to be proactive, so I'll look online, see what musicians are up to, and if I can help them, I'll let them know what I'm doing. Or even email, like, publications, music publications, let them know what I'm doing sometimes. And if I've got a shoot that day, I'll, sometimes, I'll often do a shoot about one o'clock and I, I'm something... I don't like using the word perfectionist. I, like, I prefer the word... Dedicated? Yeah, 
perfect. You see, this is why she's the presenter. Dedicated. Yeah, I, I like to give people nice things, so I don't do more than one shoot a day, and I'll just spend however long it takes with the musician until we've got shots that they like. And I say this to every musician I work with. It's not about getting shots that I like. It's about shots that you can live with for, like, three years as your mm. promo. And I'm, I'm going to stay there with you until you're happy with what you get. And that, this makes me sound like I'm there for hours time rubbish. But to be fair, that's not the case. But I, I sometimes will just want to go the extra mile and make sure to get shots they love. And um, by that time, I'm knackered, so I'll walk back to my hostel. By the way, I'm walking everywhere on this project just to save the £2.30 tube fare. What can people find about your work and the project that you're doing? And if they want to get in touch, what's your social media handles and all these things? The best place to find all, all the films I'm uploading and all the, the, the show, I suppose, that, it all goes through my Facebook, forward slash official CK. And Twitter is CK Golding, at CK Golding. Golding with two eyes, G-O-L-D-I-N-G. Think he sounded quite taken with Anna there and her interview skills. So, but if you're uh, if you're a musician, then uh, you heard how to get in touch with CK Golding. Uh, we've actually got a musician in later, so we'll have to ask her if she's been in touch with him. <laughs> um, yeah, and it sounds like a really good deal for musicians. You know, you get um, some free or relatively free pay pay as you feel i guess uh press shots so um you know from a professional photographer so that sounds good but there seems to be a common theme at the moment of journalists or people just um taking up the challenge of um going around the world with very little budget and Mm. couch surfing and staying with strangers and all this kind of stuff it seems to be an adventure yeah i guess it's he sounds like he's having the time of his life you know a few ups and downs, you know, with with money sometimes being tight, but he, he sounds like he's he's loving it. Yeah, and there's nothing like a kind of slight stressful challenge to make new friends because you just need people to help you out. Okay, so now the film Suffragette has just opened in the cinemas here in the UK. You can't have missed it. There were protests at the premiere. There's been lots of discussion about how far we've come, how far there is to go. Uh, Lots of talk about why the story is only being told now in the cinema. So uh, I'm delighted to welcome Sarah Jackson uh, to the studio. She's the co-author of a book called Voices from History, East London Suffragettes. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. It's lovely to be here. Um, In your book, uh, you describe the East End as a kind of... um, battleground of ideas you know sort of work home life identity religion and you know before we even get on to the suffragettes all the the conditions um you know the poverty the the working conditions it was a kind of hotbed of all sorts of activism wasn't it do you say uh absolutely um i mean obviously it was a, a very poor area uh and so people had a lot to protest about. Like as you mentioned, the sort of living conditions were absolutely terrible. People were living in slums with vermin, you know, all over the walls. Pieces of plaster collapsing onto people's beds. It was really disgusting conditions. They were also being widely exploited in the factories that most most people worked in at that time. Um, in trades such as you know rope making or. Um, sort of making tins for biscuits, an enormous number of trades in all kinds of different factories and were paid, you know, appallingly low wages, particularly women, because they were paid less than men doing the same work. Um, But it was also uh, the influence of all the immigration, I think, coming into the area. There were a lot of new ideas coming in. Um, There was a lot of uh, anarchist thought being brought in, particularly from Germany. There were a lot of um, speakers. So Lenin spoke in the East End. Rosa Luxemburg came to the East End. You know, it it was the place you went, particularly 
Victoria Park um, to hear radical ideas and to sort of rally on behalf of working people. So I think there was a lot going on from the, the, the end of the 19th century right up into, you know, mid-20th century. And how um, did East London feature in the, in the run-up to the women getting, women getting the vote? Oh, well, I, I mean, I... I Obviously, I'm interested in um, the East London suffragettes because I live in East London, and so it's always something. There's something really magical about finding out about the history on your doorstep, particularly when it's a political cause that you identify with. But it also had a really, I think, fascinating character in East London, particularly because they uh, work very, very closely with a lot of other movements, particularly the socialist movement and the labour movement, and also the Irish independence movement, which was um, a huge issue at the time. So uh, the East London suffragettes actually split away from the the central suffragette movement, which was run by Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst, um, the Women's Social and Political Union, who are the main subjects of the the film that's that's out at the moment. Um, the East London branches of the WSPU became a completely separate organisation and actually completely took a totally different tack. They moved away from individual acts of you know, heroism to real tactics of mass mobilisation. So they had enormous rallies and um, worked incredibly hard to bring the whole community into the movement so that there's reports from the time, news reports, of uh, the crowds attending these rallies, thousands of people, um, being half men. Uh, which is quite surprising, I think. Um, and they they did a lot of uh, they they sort of did a lot of kind of community projects. So they ran a newspaper where they encouraged local women to write about what it's like working in a factory. You know about their union activism, about how they managed to run a home on you know seven shillings. You know with with four kids and one room, that kind of thing. Um, they also ran women's social centres where women could come together and kind of organise uh, resistance in their community, whether or not that was to do with the vote. You know, it was a very inclusive movement. Um, That's what I, I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, when people think of the suffragettes, they, you know, what comes to mind is that, you know, the throwing, throwing themselves in front of the king's mm. horse and the, the, the hunger strikes and all this brutality. But actually, of course, that was a big part of it. But actually, there were, there were much more sort of subtle things going on behind the scenes, like you just described, but also these sort of canteens, you know, with subsidised food mm. and, and uh, nurseries uh, and, um, you know, creating jobs and that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, those, those things came through, those projects came through really when war broke out in August 1914. And I didn't realise this, I have to say, until I started researching uh, the book. But when the war broke out, it had an enormous immediate impact in East London that people... Uh, you know, all these families were being supported by the wages of people working in the factories, whether that was the sort of father, you know, and the wife or the father and the, and the sort of children working in the factories. They all closed basically overnight. Um, and so there was this enormous wave of unemployment which pushed people who were already kind of on the brink into the abyss so people were actually living in starvation conditions. And what the suffragettes did, they kind of changed... Uh, their strategy again um, and became core uh, in the community organising kind of relief projects essentially not not charity but working in the community to sort of try and uh, ensure their survival I suppose and yeah absolutely running cost price kitchens where people could get nutritious food very cheap or even free um, giving out milk uh, to families with starving children running a health clinic for malnourished children um, and their mothers uh, and they pr the, my favourite thing 
saying is that they created a cooperative toy factory, as you do, um, uh, with a creche, which is incredibly progressive, even by today's standards. And they paid, of course, paid a living wage um, and ran it along cooperative lines. So it was all democratic. I mean, they were incredibly progressive, quite radical group of people. And where did your fascination with this area come from? Oh, it's really... um, I moved to Bow uh, uh, just close, actually, to the Bryant and May Match Factory ten years ago, Um, and I knew about the Match Women's Strike of 1888 and thought that was, you know, fantastically inspiring. And I actually kind of started looking around the local history because of them and then found out there was this amazing suffragette sort of history right on the doorstep as well. Um, And it... Interestingly, it was a a book written by my co-author that really tipped me off to this whole thing, Rosemary Taylor, who is a really pioneering local historian who did a lot of work uncovering this completely forgotten history in the the late 80s and early 90s. Um, So it was a real thrill to be able to collaborate with her on the book. Um, But in a way, she kind of started it all. Okay. And you're working on another project, aren't you? There's a museum in its embryonic (laughs) stages. That's right, yeah. The the East End Women's Museum, um, which was an idea that it actually wasn't my idea um it's my friend sarah hughes idea who uh, is a public historian uh, she can't be here today unfortunately but i'm sort of representing both of us uh, but when we heard about the jack the ripper museum which opened on cable street um after planning permission had been secured for an, for a women's history museum in east london we you know we were angry like a lot of people in the community were angry and we thought well what is something positive that we can do to try and make this better, a better situation. So we thought, well, actually, why don't we make the missing museum? Why don't we make it? We put out a call on Twitter uh, for sort of people who might want to get involved. We thought perhaps we'll get 20 or 30 volunteers, maybe, if we're lucky. And we ended up with an email list of 600 people um, offering their time and their support. We've been really, um, really inspired and, and overwhelmed, to be honest, by the interest in this idea. Mm. Um, sorry, just for the people that don't know, why why were you angry about the Jack the Ripper Museum? What what caused this anger? Well, it's partly the way it was done. I mean, it's really the people who live the the, the Cable Street community. I don't live near Cable Street, but I think they've um, they're the ones who've got a real grievance because they were promised something and those plans were approved on the basis that it was going to be a museum that talked about the London suffragettes, talked about the Match Women, talked about you know Stepney Housing, you know uh, Tenants League, talked about the Bengali Housing action group you know all those amazing women that proud history of activism in east london what they've got is basically a misogynist tourist attraction um because even though the museum pr is is trying to convince people because obviously there's been a lot of controversy about it that it's about east end women uh, it seems to be more about east end women's bodies than anything else um and we remain we're yet to be convinced that this is going to be a positive contribution to um heritage of, of east london women Listening to you talk, Sarah, you, you obviously know a, lo- a load about the, the history <laughs> of the women's movement. I'm wondering, though, what your opinions are on um, where we stand today in the 21st century. And some people are calling, a, calling this phase the fourth ah. wave of feminism. And it's a, kind of a lot to do with the internet and how people are communica- communicating over the internet. Do you have any thoughts on that's that? A, that's a big question. It is a big question. <laughs> um, <laughs> to be honest, the, the idea of this son of feminism coming in waves, although I think it's, it's a useful shorthand, I feel it's a little bit reductive because actually feminism is a movement that's it's always been huge and plural and it's also a global movement. I think that's something that gets forgotten a lot, that, you know, there's feminist activism taking place all over the world every day and has been for hundreds of years, you know. It's, and so my feeling is that that's actually quite a... Uh, Eurocentric, sort of US-centric way of looking at it. And 
you know, I, I feel that it, it sort of disguises some of the positive diversity in that movement and diversity of opinion. I feel that having uh, lots of different opinions and ideas, whether it's in one wave or across several waves, actually makes the whole movement stronger, is my feeling. We could do a whole show just on this. <laughs> um, uh, so, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Your book, Voices from History, East London Suffragettes, is available on Amazon. And please come back and let us know about the museum, you know, when, when there's any developments on that, so keep us posted there. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so, from not quite related topic but um uh, it, it's a, a topic around choice um so i co-organize a discussion event called propaganda um at the book club in shoreditch and it's a, a live discussion event where um the idea is to pop uh, the zeitgeist around ideas that we take for granted in popular culture and the last theme that we popped um was around choice and whether it's uh, burden or overrated and this is a little sound montage recorded from that event exit freedom of thought the time is not yet let us pray that it never happens can we agree that capitalism is an economic system a system for the production and distribution of things we need and want if you treat her right she might make you a darn good employee what's the answer is it money or is it magic defies any code of morality. Let me be clear. Let's make some magic! How about it? What is it you want most? And as the lights blink out, a day of work, a day of fulfillment, of happiness, and of peace merges into the assurance of a fuller life. There are times in life that you feel like you have no choice, 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 no choice. I think sometimes we forget what it was like before we had so much choice. And it wasn't all roses and we weren't all living in harmonious environments. A lot of us were actually really stimmed. There's been a real conscious awakening and wow, I can actually do anything that I want to do. But now that means, what should I be doing right now? I'm Marianne Cantwell. I'm the author of Be a Free Range Human. My name is Dubem Manakaya, the founder of the Latitude Collective. Every day I'm dealing with people who feel like they have no choice and they're stuck in a reality that really doesn't work for them. Or people who have suddenly exploded with lots of ideas and all this choice but feel similarly constrained because they don't know where to go or what the right one is. And that's what Latitude is. It's a philosophy, life plus attitude, which is an introspective look at your own life and, and gaining some type of meaningful direction as in what should I be doing right now. I got to the time where I went to university and I think something happened that happens to all of us who get to the end of our schooling and whatever happens after that. We go from thinking that there are all the choices in the entire world to thinking that we're going to have to choose one path and that that path is going to in some way define us. Where was the person I was when I was so excited about life and now I'm going into an office, a shop, a whatever, every day? Is this what there is? And everyone's around you is saying, yep, and you're pretty lucky to have it. I was removed from university and I spent a lot of that time being pretty depressed because I thought, oh, I don't have a CV, I won't be able to get a job, you know, what am I going to do with my life? So I remember I bought a Duncan Bannatyne's autobiography. The book was called Anyone Can Do It. So I kind of 
took that mentality of like, oh, anyone can do it. I got involved with, you know, young entrepreneur societies and I began to see that this was a coming theme now. Young people become much more inclined to doing their own thing and creating whatever they wanted to create. And it was beyond business. You know, you saw it in YouTube, uh, music and art. And, you know, you hear about these young people writing bestsellers. And, and I really saw that it was becoming a real broad concept that was out there. But at the same time, I began to see, okay, so anyone can do anything. What makes something stand out? And because there's so many choices now, what makes someone pick a particular thing, an area to create and specify it? Choice. I think that there is, there's an overlap and there's an area of choice that goes into a decision that we don't distinguish. A decision is based on considerations. So people who have all these choices, and that's a line we hear, well, I don't have any choice in this. If I had more choices, I wouldn't be here. Then when we discover another way of thinking about the world, and exactly the same problem comes in, but from the other side, which is, I have too many choices. I'm not sure if any of them are right. I don't want to get it wrong, so I can't move. And so we have two situations of paralysis. I'd like to pop the notion that you have to make the right choice. You talked about the paradox of choice, but the responsibility of choice was even more powerful. Responsibility of choice is as much about the responsibility to say, I might get this wrong, and I can live with that. And you can't create unless you get things wrong. I'm a teacher, and one thing that I have a real problem with is rubbers. And it's been a massive debate about correcting and choice. And I think there is a nation of correction. Too much perfection. There's something in the process rather than the outcome. Failure is such an awful thing, and these kids come out of school with their A-stars and everything, and as though their life is going to end because they didn't get into the right university or they didn't do this or they didn't do that. It's almost like they're told, if you don't do all this, you lose choice. You don't get to the right university, you don't get here, and then your path is on the way to hell or whatever. I'd like to pop the notion that we're even in control most of the time or at conscious choice. 80 or 90% of our decisions are happening probably quite automatically. It's this idea of that we're not always in control of what's happening in the world, but we can have a choice about how we respond to what happens in the world. I think a lot of us have a fear of saying no, a fear of saying that life path isn't one that I want to take. Actually, there's something in it that's not feeling right. So seeing no as being as powerful as a yes. One thing that, that helped me live a happier life is basically to ask myself, does this enjoy my life? Does this have value? Does it have a purpose? Starting with why and getting really back to that core of what is it that I am creating, what is it that I am doing, and just sticking with that, that might mean that you create a life where you don't follow most of the choices available to you, but that you don't get frustrated at them. I began to see that as I discovered my why and my style and the experiences that I really embraced, there were some things that just kind of fell off that I didn't really want to do anymore. And at the same time, I began to know what were the next steps to take, the direction that I could be going in to really develop myself and really live this fulfilled life because that is the real choice that we're making today in society is whether to live a fulfilled life or, or to not live a fulfilled life. Cool.
course, topics for the next propaganda. Anyone got any that have come to them throughout today? Rhett's idea was that we, it's, we could call it social identity bigger than yourself. So the next propaganda is on Sunday the 15th of November. Uh, 2 p.m. at the book club, 2 till 4. And so we'll be exploring these ideas of me and me culture and we culture. And um, places are available via propaganda.co.uk or you can check the book club website for details as well. So I'm interested, how does it work? Do you all sit in a circle? Is it a bit like therapy? <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Um, so we have two different speakers um, who are kind of chosen not necessarily because they're expert in that field but because it's something they might have thought about um and they kind of present their case so it's not one person versus another it's just two angles on an idea and then uh it's like a round table discussion so um we we have this kind of table set up and people come to the table and if they've got something to say, they come to the table and say it, and then we start the discussion. So people are moving in and out of the discussion like that. And then the idea is that you, you come in with a kind of preconceived idea, and hopefully when you leave, that idea's been popped, and you kind of think about it a little bit more, and you're like, oh, I hadn't thought about things exactly in that way, and maybe there's a different way of thinking. So I think with this one, the, the general idea um, that we've been sold, and yes, that's been popped. Uh, most people know about this big, there was a big TED talk um, by a guy, and he wrote a book by this guy called Barry Schwartz um, called The Burden of Choice. And so he kind of, he, he was saying that, you know, in popular culture, we are led to believe that the more choice that we have, the better things are. And that 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 sort of having a lot of choice, you know, that's a big marketing thing. You need lots of toothpaste, you need lots of shampoo, you need all these things. But actually, um, he kind of said that makes us really stressed and that's kind of causes anxiety. And then people can't choose anything because they've, they're bewildered with so much choice. So that that was one angle and then we because this um he wrote this book about 10 years ago now people are starting to think about choice in in yet another way so we we kind of explored that and i think the the general conclusion um from that event was kind of maybe we should see choice as a gift and we're actually lucky to have so much choice and it's how you handle it and it's how you um how you go through your life with those choices and not seeing it oh as this big burden or or, um, you know, yeah, and just thinking more, okay, I've got these choices. How do I deal with it? How do I get through life? And, how, you know, what decisions can I make to make that easier for myself? And so the, so you do kind of come to some kind of summary conclusion at the end of an event? Or well, I guess there's not really out. a conclusion. It's more um, an exploration and, and we're just getting different people's mm. ideas. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea is that, you know, that, that notion will be popped in this po popular belief that everyone has is, like, not necessarily the, the one that they should be having. It's like, okay, well, maybe there's another way to look at this. Mm. And can you just go and, and listen or...? or are you expected to kind of bring something to the table? It's it's entirely open. No, <laughs> no one has to talk. Um, some people just listen, but it's 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 quite a friendly group of people, and um, and it's it's quite curated. So we we invite 
uh, people that we know will have something to say as well. Mm. So, um, yeah, um, everyone can, if you don't feel like joining in, you just kind of sit back and, and, and enjoy the show. And then <laughs> and then I do this podcast afterwards. So that's a kind of summary mm. of, of what goes on so that um, people can... Um, for the next one, they can they can hear what happened before and get the kind of key points of of the discussion. Mm, sounds like a good way to spend a Sunday afternoon, especially now winter's coming. I think <laughs> definitely a good a good way to connect with people as well. So Sonia Bernardo, who goes by the stage name Bernardo, has just joined us in the studio. We'll find out a little bit more about her shortly. Um, first of all, let's have her music speak for itself. Um, you're going to be playing Make It Up To Me. So take yeah. it away, Sonia. Right, hey guys. I'm not going to lie only tonight Oh, you didn't come to this Seems very unlikely I give it a miss But his voice is hard to resist It lays me down I hang around Until he has enough of me Making no sound, it's for a case. Like a soul done off in this. And I'm stuck in this soup hole. With stars in this one man show. I can make no difference at all, at all. He's drinking my soul. I dream of paradise. But now I close my eyes. Hope he falls in love tomorrow, tomorrow. Maybe in the fate allowed your eyes to color me And although it's worth a stain I can wash away I can wash you away I'm stuck in this soup With stars in this woman show I can make no difference at all He's drinking my soul I dream of paradise Every night I close my eyes Hope it falls in love tomorrow Through the deep and looking 
Amazing and welcome. Um, so that was called Make It Up To Me. Mm-hmm. From what I've heard, you have uh, quite an eclectic mix of musical influences and quite a diverse musical history. Yeah. I want to know what you listen to when you're at home. What's, what's on your iPod? Um, wow. Uh, so my parents are Portuguese, okay. so I listen to a lot of Fado, which is a typical Portuguese song, which is really depressing but beautiful right <laughs> um i listen to a lot of jazz so billy holiday and uh you know all the greats mm. ella all of them um i listen to a lot of brazilian music so a lot of bossa nova and mm. all that just any type of music that's slightly depressing really <laughs> appeals to me so yeah i mean your your lyrics <laughs> i won't i won't say they're depressing but they're very kind of heartfelt and, and honest yeah and you talk a lot about life and and relationships and would you say that your inspiration is from your own experiences or do you kind of imagine characters mainly my own experience yeah but i do sort of make stories up about my friends and what they're going through which is right. probably not what they're going through that's what I imagine. So just being really nosy and just saying, like, this is what's going on with my friend. But it's probably not true. But so I guess that part is a bit imaginary, but it's very real in my mind. So okay. I guess not. A, little, a bit of artistic license there. <laughs> um, you've been working on your music. You're currently unsigned, but you've got three tracks up on your band camp. Yeah, like little demos. Yeah. What's, what's happening next? What are you doing next? So I'm writing loads. It's just it's just been really overwhelming because I've been just writing nonstop, but but like scrapping my, like ninety percent of it. So I'm trying to get at least five to six tracks on so I can prepare for two EPs and then go from there. Really, okay. But hopefully before the end of the year, I'll have my first EP out. And when you do, you'll have to come back and play us some, oh, yeah, some new sure. tracks. This definitely. is so exciting. I love it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so earlier on, we played a little bit about um, a photographer called CK Golding who's offering press shots on a kind of pay-as-much-as-you-can pay basis um, for unsigned artists. Mm-hmm. So as an unsigned artist, I'm wondering what the kind of financial pressure is for you um, not having a label to pay for promotional stuff. I'm poor. <laughs> I think I'll always be poor. Right. This is... Um, yeah, not very good, but that's amazing. I, n- I never heard of CK, so I'll definitely be get in touch with him. We'll give give get, you yeah, his tweet detail. him and be like, "Can I get a photo shoot with you or something?" So we'll do an intro tweet. Yeah, oh, exactly. please I do. do That'd be great. That'd Although be great. I have to say, the photo on your band camp's pretty pretty glamorous. That's actually from one of my mates, and he's like quite a huge photographer. So I was lucky there, um, but then he left France, so. That's it. <laughs> so I guess you like, rely on friends more when you haven't got... Yeah, kind of... I'm quite lucky. I've got, like, a, a group of friends that are quite arty or, you know, or know people that are, that can sort me out. So in that sense, I'm quite lucky. Right, OK. Um, 
recently you've been in the USA touring. Yeah. Not re- yeah. How, when, when were you in the USA? I came back on Sunday, so I went for a week. Okay, that's quite um, recent. Yeah. <laughs> you going to say, oh, a year ago. Yeah. Um, no, but it wasn't really tour. Like, uh, it wasn't touring at all. Like, it, basically, wherever I go on holiday, I take my guitar with me and I plan four to five shows. That's very clever. That's you yeah, making do Yeah, really annoying for the people who go with me, though, because <laughs> okay. then they have to sort of stick around. I feel so bad every time I do it, then... They sort of understand, so it's okay. Um, yeah, so I did two two shows there. What was the? How did the American crowd compare to? It was it us was over here? unbelievable. It was because uh, people here are reserved, mm. so they'll come up to you at the end, but you know they probably tweet you or like <laughs> friend you on Facebook and then send a message. There, they'll just queue up and be like, "Can I buy you a drink?" That was incredible. Like, this this is my number, and then they got me so many gigs. And one week in the two shows, I got so many other gigs. But I was like, "Well, I'm leaving on Sunday, so I can't really do it." So yeah, I'll probably go for a bit longer. Sounds like you should yeah. head back to. So I got to so many contacts from two little shows. Yeah. it was insane. Fantastic. Um, so gigs over here. You're playing in Clapton soon, is that right? Yeah. So the 25th of October, six o'clock, I'll be playing at the Lion Coffee and Records in Clapton. So it's a little coffee shop. They sell records and they put on some really brilliant gigs. And like, yeah. So I just emailed them and said, "Can I play?" And then, yeah, they said yes. I have to say, there's always a lovely vibe in that place. People, have you been? I have. I'm I'm a local. It's oh like- wow. So I've never been, and I'm just really excited about it. Yeah. No, it's a great place for a gig because people, they're really into music, the, the guys that run it, obviously, yeah. because it's a record shop as well. But it's very intimate. And, um, I mean, people will be as close as they can. Like, they, you are playing. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like they're cozy. They're in your face. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. So, we're lucky enough to have um, you play another song for us. Ooh. What's the name of the track you're playing next? Uh, it's called The Boy's Mine, and it's a little bit more of a love song. Thank you so much for talking to Thank us. Thank you so much for having me. Right. Ah, 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 the boy is mine 
to my eyes don't mean something to me How can I believe it when it's trouble mystery He pulls my hair behind my ear Saying, baby, wanna get out of here So tonight, I was waiting for a sign Broke my heart I fell in love at the same time Then I'm forced to admit There's a certain king to aim Tonight I'm boys Bernardo with The Boy Is Mine. It's been a real treat to have you here Thank on the show this evening. Me. And you can listen to more um, of her stuff at Bernardo Music on Bandcamp. And don't forget you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at East Coast Show or check out all of our interviews, listings and music online at eastcastshow.com and on iTunes. And if you sign up to our monthly newsletter, you'll get all our audio news straight into your inbox. You're listening to East Coast Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. And next up, we are going to be delving into the depth of sexuality and sexual attraction with Hello Again, a Playpen Productions latest uh, production. Anna Xavier caught up with an artistic director about the musical that's been adapted from Arthur Schnitzler's La Ronde. Hello, my name is Tanya Zvirdu and I am the artistic director of Playpen Productions and the director for this production of Hello Again. What is it catchy about the play? Hello Again is basically a musical about sex. Okay, and uh, what else is going on apart from sex? Is there all just sex in, um, in the play? So it's not a porno, uh, but uh, so it's a play with music and with sung orgasms and with all sorts of musicalized sexual feats. It's a lot more than just being about sex. It's also about relationships and how sex can be used in a number of ways to gain power over someone else. It also tells about the evolution of sex throughout the last century because it covers all ten decades of the 20th century. Okay, and how does it actually fall in today's society? Because every day now we are being really exposed to a lot of sexual content. And how do you frame a play that was, that was written a while ago? But how does it stay current? 
So the way that Hello Again has been adapted is that it has 10 scenes and all of them take place in one different decade of the 20th century. But the scenes don't happen chronologically. So basically the first scene is the 1900s, then you jump to the 40s, 60s, then back to the 30s and so on. In all of those you've got a sexual encounter of some description. The point that it makes basically is that human beings in whatever time of history have had the same libido, basically, and the same desire for intimacy, but they keep messing up their relationships royally and they keep not communicating with each other and they keep either having really bad sex or having really guilty sex or having really non-intimate sex and just and just constantly, constantly seeking real intimate connection and not achieving it. And how was the creative process of kind of putting the whole thing together? The creative process has been complicated. Well, not complicated in a bad way, just just really complex. Because we have a cast of five people who over three weeks have just had to become extremely close to each other in every sense of the word. They very quickly had to be able to portray a sense of intimacy that for all of these characters has taken years to achieve. Um, and so that's been really rewarding because you get to see some really fantastic performances and the music is superb. So this is scored from beginning to end so there is not one moment in this piece that doesn't have music accompanying it and rather complex music. So finding that they've been they've managed to marry scenes that are stupidly well written, they're just like really good theatre scenes each in their own right. And to have a cast that can marry the complexity of these characters and scenes to fantastically executed music, it's the most breathtaking thing. Great. What were your favourite moments? Oh Christ, okay. Um, Any crazy things going on? <laughs> well actually, like today was a really, really, really good day and today was a day that I was fearing the most because today we staged the two scenes that have male homosexual sex in it and that was the one that I was least comfortable with because, I mean, I've watched a lot of gay porn recently to be able to, to do justice to those two scenes. Um, but I, but I was kind of dreading how much I could put into it. His wife didn't like me. What fork do I use on the seven? And you're returning home to your home. Actually, when I land in New York, I suppose I'll be out on my own. You crowdfunded for the play. How was the process? Oh, Christ. Okay, so for that... We decided to work with the Hope Theatre because the Hope is one of the very, very few fringe theatres in London that has a commitment to paying a legal wage to whatever actors it employs. So we've decided to work with them for that reason mostly because it's just something that Playpen Production has in its ethos that we want to, for our next production, we've always wanted to do it properly. So in order to, for us to be able to pay our actors, being that this is a company and a theatre that receives no state funding whatsoever, 
the only real way of doing it was through sponsorships and through crowdfunding. And we hit our target, we hit 70% of our target to get the show on the road. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, under Playpen Prod. The production is called Hello Again. It's on at the Hope Theatre in Islington from the 20th of October to the 7th of November, so a three-week run. And you can buy tickets online if you just go to the hopetheatre.com website. So if you want to see that racy play, uh, that's on 20th of October till 7th of November at the Hope Theatre. Just the idea of people having sex and singing about it at the same time <laughs> kind of is slightly appealing for some, really, for some reason. Yeah. Um, so every now and again, we like to delve into the East Cast archive for interviews from the past. So as last Saturday was World Mental Health Day, we wanted to acknowledge this. And here is a man who has been living with bipolar for the past 20 years. Here's Gary Malloy's story. I'd been unwell the whole of my 20s and diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So I had no direction. I was doing jobs I didn't like. And I was lost, in a sense. No direction, no purpose. So a social worker suggested I look around Core in about 99. And I looked around and thought, well, there's nothing in there for me. I'm not an artist. I can't, you know, I've never done any music. So I didn't really want anything to do with it. And on an appointment, six months later, I popped in again. And a tutor was here, he said, would you like to join the class? And I did my first painting of a fire extinguisher. And in my book later on, I published a book, he's described it as putting the fire out. And it started my journey as an artist, really. I started attending regularly, gave me a structure to the day, something to focus on, but it was tough at first because I didn't really have a great aptitude for it, a natural kind of talent or skill. So the tutor said I had something in me, and so just stick with it. The funny thing with bipolar, there are three different aspects, three different levels of bipolar, which even some doctors aren't aware of or don't promote or give advice on. Bipolar 1, which I have, is the most severe level of bipolar, and that goes usually into psychosis, and when someone gets very manic. Bipolar 2 is where it's mainly depressions, and the slight name is, but it doesn't go into the psychosis. Bipolar 3 is called cyclothemia, and that's what Stephen Fry has talked about having. If there was a red button to press to take away the condition, a lot of people wouldn't press that button. And that's been uh, on my mind. I've thought about that many times. I'd have to say it's a paradox for me. In some ways, totally I would press that button. Completely I'd have to press it because the severity in my 20s of the illness was unimaginable pain. You know, at times I was taken in on a section to hospital, held down by nurses, injected with medication. I had the side effect akathisia come on, which I'm highlighting in the latest exhibition. Horrendously, that side effect is the inability to move coupled with the inability to sit still. And online, in some forums, other people have talked about it as chemical torture. So it's a rare side effect, but I experienced that and it can last for a week or two. This condition with an inability to breathe is just an inability to exist. 
On the other hand, the way my life has developed, finding the creativity, the people I've met, developing as an artist and having the ability to affect others and to promote positivity and to give others hope. I kind of have a, a support network which uh, the patient has to build up in time. So I have a brother of mine who's like my carer in a sense. We're very close and he's good at helping me spot when I have a, an episode coming on. I'm very good now because I've had it 20 years. So I've, I've become like a bit of an expert in my own condition. So I'm very good at recognising when I'm, I've lost sleep, I'm not eating very well, I'm getting a bit high, I've spent a bit too much money. You know, these are characteristics of bipolar. Mm -hmm. So the aim is to teach the bipolar sufferer to become a self-manager. So when you're young, like I was at 21 when it first happened, I had no idea of what was happening to me. So the severity was very strong. I had to be sectioned because you don't know what happens. You have no tools in the box. Whereas now I've got so many tools to recognise the signs, to come away from things for a few weeks, to, to cut out appointments. So it's a learning process. That was Gary Malloy there, who found that art helped him in his recovery. And I got to meet him um, through a charity called Core Arts, um, and they're based in Hackney, and they support people with mental illness through creative projects. And um, So keep an eye on their website as they put on exhibitions regularly. Um, so we are still calling out for your audio submissions uh, for our Sounds of the London Underground project, be it music, spoken word, field recordings, interviews, all along that theme. Uh, for details and guidelines, go to eastcastshow.com. Although we still don't know when this 24-hour <laughs> <laughs> uh, weekend underground uh, service is actually going to happen but we're sticking at it we are <laughs> you know 24 hour or not you know the tube is relevant to us exactly. all Londoners <laughs> um, so we'll be playing one of these um, right at the end of the show um, just to make everything kind of fit in like a lovely jigsaw puzzle um, it's by artist Stephen Shield who gave us uh, a tour of um, a place called Cody Dock where he works and um, he created a soundscape made entirely of sounds recording at Stratford Station, um, which has become a bit of a destination over the years. It's uh, quite a... Uh, there, there's a lot going on there. I went there recently. I didn't realise how many different trains went through there. So big station. Um, and I'm actually working on another audio project at the moment called Something to Declare. And it's around the idea that Everyone or nearly everyone in London has arrived at some point from somewhere else. Maybe it's them personally, or it could be their parents or even their grandparents. And essentially, most of us or pretty much nearly everyone has something to declare. So whether it's you or your family who've um, come from somewhere else, I'm collecting these stories. And if you've got a good uh, arrival tale to tell, uh, just tweet us um, at East Coast Show and I will get in touch. You are listening to East Coast Show on Resonance 104.4 FM and you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at East Coast Show. Please do check out all of our interviews, our listings and music online at eastcastshow.com and on iTunes. It's nearly time for us to say goodbye, but before we do, um, we have just enough time to play one of our audio submissions as part of our Sounds of the London Underground project. Um, uh, 
as Pearl just mentioned, here is Stephen Shields' piece inspired by and recorded using sounds of the London Underground called Minutes Impulses. So that's all from us um, until next time. Thanks for listening.